Hey. Welcome to this week's episode of the 13th Floor Podcast. I'm Cece. I'm Alex. I'm James. And this week we're talking about James's topic of choice. James, what did you assign to us this week? Uh, surprising nobody, bugs. Bugs. <laughs> so we've all kind of done... Oh, Alex and I have done our research. James mm. just has a head full of knowledge when it comes to bugs. Mm. So... For James, this is just like a regular day. I was covered in ants earlier. You were you were covered in ants earlier. Yeah, uh, this is a weird little factoid about me. Um, whenever ants have their nuptial flight, which is when the queens and the, the males mate, uh, I always end up covered in ants. I don't know if I smell like an ant or what, but I always end up covered in ants. James Ooh. is just emitting the pheromones that answer. attract ants. Ooh, James. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm actually thirty thousand ants in a suit. <laughs> Maybe that's why he loves bugs so much. Maybe, but then they well, love him apparently. Yeah. Well, James, um, how do you feel about being covered in ants? Does it bother you? Does it make you happy? As long as they don't crawl in my ear, I'm good. Oh, okay. All right. Let's stop talking about that. You've you've ruined it. You've ruined it. <laughs> oh, you might hear Archer. Oh. Archer thinks that you've ruined it too. He's here. <laughs> He's here. He's, he's just staring at me. I don't. He just wants to get on the microphone. I think. I think he just doesn't know what's happening right now. All right. Yeah. Anyways, oh. okay. So, Alex, what have you been up to? Oh man, um, my car died. Yeah, that's been really so fun. I've been at home. No, he's been <laughs> using my car. Yeah, but I've been at home. I mean, I would normally go into the office, and now I don't uh, go to the office anymore. That's but. Um, yeah, it sucks, but, uh, you know, applying to new jobs, lots of interviews last week. So hopefully something good, some good news this week. Yeah. James, what about you? I just been busy with this and that. It's, it's been a, it's been a very busy year. Um, state fair. That was fun. Yeah. What was the most exciting thing that you saw at the state fair, the Kentucky state fair? Uh. I mean, every year, uh, my favorite thing, God, I am becoming cliche at this point, um, <laughs> is the observation beehive that they have. <laughs> observation beehive? So you just go and watch bees? Yeah, it's it's transparent, so you can see everything. Hmm. You know, they had one of those at Raven's Run, I think is what it was, in, in Kentucky. Hmm. And I remember when I was in elementary school, we would go on field trips there and they had a little dot on the back of the queen bee. Ah, uh, right. And I'd go and find the queen bee, and when I found it, I'd be like, okay, I'm done here. I found what <laughs> I need to see. Interesting. Cool. Well, I don't really have any any big news for our episode. Hmm. We're still working on our Patreons, yep. getting that back up and running. But, James, do you have an icebreaker for us this week? Okay, yeah, I mean, this one, man, yeah, we're going full cliche today with, with James stereotypes. But uh, what is your favorite invertebrate? I'm going to actually, I'm going to make it broader. What's your favorite invertebrate? That is to say, what's your favorite animal that doesn't have a spinal column? Hmm. Butterflies don't have spinal columns, right? That's correct. Insects, crustaceans, mollusks, that includes octopus and squid. Um Mm. Most, in fact, most say. most things actually. It's, it's kind of funny, you know. Most, like ninety nine percent of life on Earth, just about invertebrates. I'm gonna go squid. Oh. What? Since when do you like squid? 
I don't like a lot of invertebrates. But when I do think about invertebrates, I think about squids. Yeah. I think about their little beaks that they've got, which are really cool. They are cool. And that they can become colossal sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Why, do you have beef with giant squids? No, I've just, you've never once talked about squid in your entire Name life. Name an invertebrate that I talk about frequently. Um, sometimes we get uh, an ant in the house and you're like, ooh. <laughs> talk about ants a lot more than you talk about mine mine is obviously okay anybody who knows me knows that i have butterflies all around my house butterflies for me they're so pretty they fly so so gracefully and delicately and they just make the world a more colorful place yeah, so deal, buffalo and now we have them all over our front yard all, all the time now yeah we've got some lantana i think this was called growing out front yeah. And so it has just attracted so many butterflies. I've got the cutest little picture of Archer um, photobombing a spiced bush swallowtail ah. in our front yard. So, you know, it's it's wonderful. Butterflies for the win. And James, I, I, I feel like I can guess yours. Oh, try. Is this is a spider? Actually, you know, like I love spiders. But <gasps> funny enough, my favorite invertebrate is my second favorite animal. Ooh. And it's close to Alex's. It's the cuttlefish, which is oh, oh. Like a squid. Yeah. good pick, James. Yeah, I think they're cool because they talk in color, and that's that's the coolest thing ever. And James has synesthesia, right? Yeah. So you can see, you can hear colors, right? Yeah. I does just, that mean I never thought they, about it? But yeah, that's might be. Does that like mean cuttlefish. you can communicate with? Uh, I mean, it'd be one way communication. But do you think you could communicate with a cuttlefish? I think it's pretty easy. Like it's intuitive. I've seen okay. cuttlefish before. It's pretty easy to figure out what they're saying. What would you say to a cuttlefish? Say you're my favorite animal. <laughs> you said wow, wow. Well, James, yeah, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say just, second to them. I was going to say, that's very deceptive because you told yeah. us that they're your second favorite. So well, you would just straight up. They're a deceptive up- animal. They camouflage themselves. He they would, would lie to the selfish. Mm. Yeah. James would tell it that, and then its cheeks would turn red. Yeah. Because it can do that. It would no, go, it would. <laughs> I think that the cuttlefish is so smart that it would hear your answer and it would go, This guy just said purple to me. He's lying. Uh, interesting. Interesting. Yeah. So. <laughs> Anyways, okay, cool. So we've got our favorite bugs. Invertebrates. I'm sorry, invertebrates. I've I've just got bugs in the mind. I've been reading about bugs the past two days. You're bugging me out. Okay, is it it time to go? Should we talk? Yeah, go for it. And James, feel free to interrupt with a a diatribe about your bugs. Oh, I will. Several times, probably. That's okay. Who's going first? But mm-hmm. well, J- like James, are you? This is your topic. Do you want to go first, or are you going last? Like, uh, how, think, do you, how do you want to play it? Let's go, CC Alex James. I Al- hate that. Alex yeah, I know that's, that's why I picked it. <laughs> yeah, make you regret giving me the choice. Okay, here one second. <laughs> Never again. I'm gonna have to hand the baby off to Alex because he's wiggling and jiggling. He's waggling just like babies. Okay, all right. So I was assigned this topic from Sir James. He was like, CC, can you just, can you tell me about the smartest invertebrates? And I said, sure, James, let me look into it. And got most of my research from womanaroundtown.com and Atlas Obscura, one of my favorite websites. Uh, And not surprisingly, measuring intelligence for a bug is like really hard thing to do. 
Because when we think about intelligence as humans, we think about things that like think like we do, but insects aren't going to think like we do, right? Exactly. Yeah. So measuring their intelligence is difficult. But that being said, there are some insects that when I stopped and I thought to myself, okay, before I start looking into this, what do I think are the smartest insects? The first thing that came to mind is one of the smartest insects in the world. Are you guys ready for it? Go for it. The honeybee. <laughs> the honeybee. The honeybee. Yep. Yes. So, James, when you were at the state fair, you just were observing the smartest invertebrate. Oh, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna be listening. I'm just gonna walk away from the microphone. So, little archers pushes. Yeah. Aren't gonna be in all the episodes. Archers been <laughs> trying to use a restroom for like. So, dear hours. listener, if you hear me. From a distance, chime in. That's why. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So anyways, honeybees. There are multiple reasons why they're really smart. The one that came to my mind is, okay, they live in colonies. Mm. Right? Yes. So they live, they've got like a social structure, which is a super sophisticated thing for something like a, a insect to have. Because Absolutely. When you look, yeah. When you look at an insect, it's so tiny. It's got a tiny little brain. Um, so you don't normally think about things like this, but they've got their little roles within the community. Mm. It requires teamwork and communication. I feel like anybody who's ever worked in a group on a group project, like at school knows how frustrating it can be working with other people, but these bees do it and they survive. It's how they thrive living together in a community. And at the top, you've got the queen bee. Well, that I always wanted to find a little dot painted on her back. She's the the one. She has all the babies. Yep. She is at the top of the chain. Mm-hmm. And then you got the drone bees. Alex, do you know what a drone bee does? It just does what it tells it to. It's, it's just, just they're, they're they're dispensable. It's just a baby daddy bee. Oh. Ah. Yeah, they just have all the babies. They're just kind of there. I thought they were like the workforce for some reason. No, that's the worker bees, and those are the female bees. Okay, so these drone bees are just sitting on their butts like, oh, let me have your baby queen bee. And then, (laughs) yeah, and then the worker bees are like, fine, I will go get the food. I will build the nest. I will do all of these things. I'll take care of everything. Beyonce said it best when she said who run the world. Girls. Alex, have you heard that song before? What? I know you're not a big Beyonce fan. No. Okay, well, anyway. Unless it was like on the radio, I may have heard it once. There's okay. a there's a quote from Fight Club I love where he talks about how the workers and drones can leave, but the queen is the slave. And uh, there's a ring of truth to that because really the queen is more like if you think about a hive as and I'll touch on this later. If you think of a hive as a single organism, in many ways it is. The queen is really just the ovaries of the hive and the workers actually make way more decisions. More on that later. More on that later. I like that that little drop there, James. <laughs> well, another thing that bees do that is really intelligent is they dance. Mm. And it's funny because Alex is like in the corner dancing with Archer right now. Like, wiggle, wiggle, wiggle. Yeah. Well, they communicate through dance. So there's this thing called the waggle dance where a bee basically moves around, shakes his little booty, and it tells all the other bees like, oh, hey, guess what? Other worker bees. There's this patch of like bomb flowers that's like half a mile away. I'm going to dance in this little figure eight. I'm going to shake really quickly and I'm going to do it in a certain direction so that you know, number one, where it's located. And number two, 
how far away it is. Mm-hmm. So I, I, in my brain, that just mystifies me that bees know how to do this. It's because amazing. Yeah, I, I get my left and my right confused. And they're here dancing in little circle eights telling everybody where everything's located. And it's not just inset, in, uh, bleh, instinct. Bleh. Um, yeah. It, you know, they actually have to learn where things are um, because their roles are based on their age. When they're first uh, turned into yeah. adults, they got to clean and then they got to guard. I might have that backwards. And only the oldest go out and gather pollen and nectar and so they've never left the hive you know they, they were born there and they were raised there and then they did most of their jobs there and then when they leave they have to fly in circles around the hive and just sort of get their bearings and find out like what the outside world is like in relation to them yeah and they they learn through observation because you're right james the the younger bees when they finally get to leave the nest and go and i guess the hive I'm, it's more of a hive when they get to leave the hive they don't know how to do anything because they've never done it before. And so they actually watch older bees doing things like collecting pollen and where to go. And that's how they learn. If an insect can learn, that is very intelligent. Mm. So another thing I thought was really interesting is that bees can apparently count up to four, possibly. What? Yeah. They did some experiment where they trained bees to go look at, I guess there were different landmarks and they trained the bees. That, okay. At this one, if you go to this one, you get a little prize or something. And they always stopped at the third one. Interesting. And so it's like they could count and they would vary the distance that the landmarks were located so that it wasn't just them practicing. Okay. I know that if I go this far this way, that's where that thing is. They would move it around so that, yeah. So anyways, I thought that was really interesting. No, definitely. It's amazing. Something that has one-tenth our neurons can do things like that, or no, way less than that. Way less. Yeah, Yeah, it was way less. Because they've got like 250,000 neurons, I think, in their brain. Which is a lot more than your average insect, but still a pittance compared to a mammal. Yeah, I might be thinking of ants, though, because that's the next little insect I'm going to talk about. Ants are also really smart. That was the other one that came to my brain when I'm thinking about what insects are intelligent. The cousins. Yeah, and and it's ants. Because they, like bees, live in communities. They're like a little team. They collect food. They can store it. They know how to find and locate food sources. And also, I did not realize that they actually farm. Uh, Alex, get him off your head. Alex has the baby on his head. Okay. Sorry. Fun fact, there's no such thing as a solitary ant. There are solitary bees. There are solitary wasps. But in Hymenoptera, all ants are social. They live together, but they farm. They basically collect leaves and then some type of fungus grows in it and they use that to feed their larva. Ugh, I hate that word larva. But they <laughs> they feed the larva this fungus. And that's not that's like that's that's pretty smart. Knowing that, hey, I can make this fungus here. But when I think about it, the first thing that I thought about when I thought about how smart are ants is I pictured in my brain, you know, everybody sees this in elementary school, the little video of the ants creating the assembly line where they're like passing things back and forth. That, that requires coordination, you know? Absolutely. Yeah. And also they use tools. Did you guys know this? Oh no. Axes. Yes. Little (laughs) tiny ant axes to cut (laughs) up all the leaves. No, they did this experiment where they put 
ants in this little area with different types of liquid like honey and sugar water and stuff like that. And they also put pieces of paper and pieces of sponges and they use the sponges to soak up the liquid to mm. take it back to their little community. Neat. So, yeah, I thought that that was really cool. It's amazing. It is. It's really cool. James, I wanted to know though, when you were younger, did you ever have an ant farm? I didn't. Uh, it's something I kind of wanted as a kid, but I did not. Instead, I would just observe stuff in nature. You would just you would just go out and watch the ants in person in their natural habitat. Yep. Man, we had an ant farm when I was little. My brother would probably be so angry that I'm telling the story, but we had mm-hmm. an ant farm when I was little. And my mom put it on top of our mantle above the fireplace. And my brothers, after school one day, I remember this very vividly, but I was working on homework and my brother was being a power ranger and he Uh-oh. climbed up on top of the mantle and was going to jump down, but he knocked over the ant farm and there were ants. Everywhere. Everywhere. Uh. Yeah. And that was the end of my ant farm story. And they had only just started to dig like the tunnels. It was really cool. So I was very upset when that happened. But yeah, that's insect intelligence. James, add whatever you want to that. Yeah, like I'm just going to dovetail on a a couple of other examples of really clever uh, invertebrates. And uh, one interesting one would be the Porsche spider. I think I may have touched on it in a previous episode. But what's unique about it is it's very intelligent but solitary. And we've talked about this before, that if, if we encountered aliens, chances are they would be predators and they would be social. They would be pack hunters because if you look at the incentive for intelligence, if you're an herbivore, you usually don't have to be that clever because your food's everywhere. You don't have to outsmart anything, in other words. And if you're not social, you don't have to learn how to cooperate. And so if you want a civilization, you're going to need both of those things most likely. Well, Porsche spiders are unique because even though they're solitary, they're kind of like the Dexter of the spider world, they specialize in killing other spiders. Oh. And as a result, they have to change up their tactics based on what species they encounter. And because you're dealing with something that's in the same ballpark <laughs> as you in terms of abilities. James, did huh? you hear that baby fart on the I microphone? I did. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Oh, man. <laughs> Uh, but uh, but what's neat about Porsche spiders is because they have to alter their behavior based on the prey they're encountering and they have to really come up with a strategy and, and really, it's a good word for that, like uh, improvise whenever they're uh, trying to get a meal. It's led to some remarkable intelligence and Porsche spiders are, are related to, to jumping spiders and you can see that with their anatomy. And jumping spiders are very intelligent as far as that goes. They're very visual. So we kind of, I guess, empathize a little more with them than with a lot of other spiders because, you know, they're, they're cute, they're visual, and they're intelligent. But Porsche mm. spiders take that to a whole other level to a point that it's really, in many respects, it still baffles scientists because you're dealing with something that has an extremely small mind with very few neurons most of which are devoted to visual processing, and yet it's able to come up with all these strategies and do all these remarkable things. And in fact, there was a very recent study with jumping spiders specifically uh, that illustrates that it's very likely they dream. And uh, huh. that, yeah, 
that in and of itself is fascinating. When they sleep, even though they don't have eyelids, uh, rapid eye movement is visible. And they also begin to twitch and, and perform motor functions that like, you know, for example, when you see a dog dream, we would associate with being in a dreamlike state. And uh, lastly, uh, well, not lastly, I got a couple other things about insect intelligence. But uh, <laughs> one, one interesting thing about uh, insect intelligence is something I would have completely written off. In fact, I actually observed one of my tarantulas, pumpkin, one of my first tarantulas, um, engaging in what appeared to be play-like behavior. She was uh, rolling her water dish all over the place and carrying it around in her mouth at random intervals. Huh. And uh, I thought, wow, that's really cute. And I showed other people and people were like, oh my God, should they play? And I was like, well, no, not really. It's just, uh, I don't know what she's doing, but it wouldn't be play. Well, very recently also a study came out that shows that invertebrates, including spiders, do engage in play behaviors. Um, so you've been lying to all these people. I have. <laughs> um, one of the most interesting ones is, uh, and, and you'll remember this, Alex, from when you talked about um, uh, Socotra Island, you know, there's a species of social tarantula there. Well, when they are juveniles, they engage in mating behaviors, which scientists thought was very peculiar because they're too young to mate. And a cursory examination of this people thought well it's kind of like play behavior but insects and arachnids don't play well they notice something interesting which is that cannibalism can happen with adults when they engage in real mating but when the huh. juveniles play mated it never happened it never escalated to anything it was always harmless and so ultimately what they deemed to be the case was that this was in fact play behavior and not sexual behavior. So it's just a very odd observation that's only recently come to light that insects and arachnids, invertebrates, let's say invertebrates, can dream, can strategize, and can play, which is something we normally associate. That's nuts. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's totally bananas. Um, yeah. So that's, that's what I've got at present. <laughs> wow. That's amazing. <laughs> I had no idea. I want to see. Send me a video of, of uh, pumpkin playing. Pumpkin yeah. playing can yeah. do. Uh, yeah, little so man might have to be escorted away for a start. Yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna go walk over there with him. But you Alex might be getting a lot more than farts here in a minute. Yeah, Alex, what are you talking about? <laughs> yeah. So I wanted to talk about some. I, I want to call it th yeah. So I guess some of somewhat theoretical aspects of insects maybe just some general scary questions people might have about insects yeah. that are uh maybe within the realm of of uh, 13th floor more than some other topics but one thing people probably wonder a lot you know we have an ocean where we don't know anything about right Fair there's point. so much of it we just don't understand how big do things get all that we have a lot of ground under us too so i'm sure some people probably wonder how big insects can get We've all seen those demons in Australia. Um, <laughs> so, uh, and some people may have seen the movie Them, where giant ants get radiated due to like nuclear weapons testing and they wreak havoc all over, I think it's Los Angeles. Um, That's a good one. It is a good one. Uh, I, I'm sure a lot of people will think that maybe deep underground, maybe something like that could exist, or maybe because of the, the way we treat the planet, uh, could maybe 
you know, highly irradiate one of these things and maybe make it mutate to be maybe not them size, but bigger than you would expect. Mm. Well, back in uh, prehistoric times, somewhere around 300 million years ago, insects had reached uh, their biggest size. This was their peak. Mm. Apparently, there was this... Uh, these griffin flies and they're they're like dragonflies and they reign supreme and they had these big wingspans of uh up to 28 inches is what we've seen so far at least from the fossils that i've seen so far um so these things were pretty massive i mean if you've seen jurassic world dominion you know those bugs but way bigger and more dragonfly here um <laughs> now <laughs> Part of why these insects were so big were for two reasons. First off, the oxygen in the air. They had a 9% higher oxygen level in their atmosphere compared to what we're currently used to. And while that does sound like maybe just a, <laughs> while it does sound like just a little bit of a difference, it, it makes an enormous uh, it can lead to an enormous amount of change, especially apparently in insects. Now, one of the um, one of the limiting factors of insects is the way they take in oxygen. You know, they bring in through these small tubes in their exoskeleton. So the air needs to be dense, in, or the oxygen needs to be dense in the atmosphere in order for them to breathe. Yeah. Uh, the, you know, they go through these small tubes, and uh, the more the denser the bigger they can get because as they get bigger, it gets harder for them to acquire enough oxygen for their body. Mm -hmm. So it does discourage growth. If you have an atmosphere like ours, um, it's going to require your insect to be a little smaller than it used to be. His, his, uh, great, great, great ancestors used to be, I guess. Mm -hmm. Now the other question is, you know, what if they develop, you know, uh, some sort of other breathing system? What if they evolve, into something that allows them to acquire even more oxygen. Is it possible that this could happen? I say, yeah. Well, <laughs> I, I mean, yeah, I would think technically it is possible, but from what I've been able to look at, here's the issue. The way insects breathe is actually more efficient than how we do it. And it has much more utility than how we do it as well. Insects can shut down at will, and they can require no oxygen for a long time. Mm. Um, and it's also very efficiently gets its air to all of its extremities and organs, much more so than the way we do. So they have a couple. Uh, oh, what are they called? They have a couple um, of the spiracles uh. that are dedicated to a specific limb. And so it has oxygen flowing straight into the part that needs it all over its body, which is, you know, we, ours goes into our organs and then slowly feeds into the rest of us. Like, you know, I never thought about it, but you couldn't be an asthmatic insect. <laughs> no, you could not. No, you could not. And so it technically, it seems like, if they evolved to our way of breathing, they would actually be taking a step back mm. because of how inefficient it would be. Um, plus, they might have another issue. They might have another issue if they hit this, if they do decide to switch over 
and decide like it's not evolution. Yeah, no worries. <laughs> we get it. No um, if they do decide to grow, and if they did evolve the this like tracheal breathing uh, way that we do it, it's <laughs> the other issue is something that we also witnessed about 150 million years ago. So insect growth seemed to track one-to-one with oxygen levels throughout history until about 150 million years ago. And then suddenly oxygen levels spike. Yeah. But up to like 35%, I think. Yeah. Yeah. It it is quite the spike. If you were there, if we were there, we would be like, we would be high. We would be like dizzy and yeah, it would be crazy. <laughs> it'd, it'd be bad. Um, and But the weird thing is, is as the oxygen level went up, insects went down in size. They began to shrink. Mm. And what this actually tells us is that this is most likely the time that birds had began to evolve. Uh. And insects, being a primary food source, needed to be faster and what they did was end up, they ended up evolving into a smaller, more nimble form. And so I would like to issue a formal thank you to birds <laughs> for keeping the insects tiny and also a small thank you to pollution for also keeping them oh, that well. way. <laughs> You know, it, it's funny to think about. You know, we, we tend to often fantasize about some animals developing qualities more like us, including being human sized as like a step forward. But, you know, mm-hmm. insects can, they, they run the world. They're, they're everywhere. And a lot of that's because they're little, you know, they've, they've really hit a, a gold mine evolutionarily. Mm-hmm. I mean, I wouldn't want to yeah. be a teeny tiny and live for a year, but if you want to be a successful species, it's, it's a pretty great setup. Well, think about this, James. Remember how how slow time passed when you were smaller? Uh, you know, I've how does time pass? For I've an genuinely thought about that quite a bit. Like, does it does a year genuinely feel just very long to them? I've wondered that. I would think it almost has yeah, to. Yeah, me because too. When you're a kid, man, a year <laughs> feels so long. Yeah. <laughs> And then they just flip by the yeah, other it, it's, it's especially, I notice it most with the movie trailers of all things. Because, like, I remember when I was little, it's like, coming this fall. And I'd be like, oh, my God, that's like a forever. And now, you know, I'll blink and it's like, oh, they made a third one of those. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And so for a spider, it's like, oh, they made an eighth one of those. <laughs> oh, snap. Uh, no, good deal. That was a really good topic. Yeah, is there anything else you have to add about? Uh, not really. That was that was good. Okay. Well, James, what's here? Yeah, I'm. I'm what's the bug man himself got to uh, say? Well, I, I wanted to talk specifically, even though I'm probably going to ramble about different things, but specifically one of the most interesting qualities that insects have, and it dovetails with CCs, is eusociality. Just because it's something that for me is so fascinating and it feels like science fiction. And yet it's something that has happened multiple times uh, on earth. And what you sociality is, is humans are extremely social uh, to a point where, you know, I've heard it argued not very well that we are you social and, and we're totally not. We, we miss a lot of the criteria, but as social and complex as we are to the point that we've come up with all these abstractions to, pretty much come up with bigger excuses for bigger societies. 
we're still mm -hmm. a pretty simplistic creature compared to eusociality because eusociality is effectively what happens when members of a species begin to cooperate to such a point that instead of functioning as individuals, they function more as cells and or organs of a single superorganism. And a good way to compare that to, you know, something more relatable is just think of yourself and your own body. You know, a human being is a massive organization of trillions of human somatic cells, some gametes, and then a whole bunch, e even more than the somatic cells, a whole bunch of bacteria that we're not even related to, but they live within us and, and help us function. So, I mean, a person in some respects, we, we consider ourselves to be an organism, but we're a series of smaller critters cooperating and working together and specializing. You know, the liver cells don't ever do work like a kidney cell, nor can they. And right. if you take that and you apply that to other animals and, and, and treat individual animals as though they're cells in a body, you kind of have what eusociality is. And almost all of it, there's a monopoly of eusociality with hymenoptera, bees, ants, and wasps. They're all related. They're in the same uh, order. Um, and almost all true eusocial creatures are in hymenoptera. Now, there's two exceptions, and I think they're very weak exceptions by comparison, and that would be termites and uh, naked mole rats. And I know I've, I've talked a little bit about oh. this before, but uh, the reason why termites – and naked mole rats have developed semi-eusocial behaviors is because they're super inbred. Like, especially naked mole really? rats. I mean, there's not a lot of genetic diversity. So your genes are going to get passed on, whether it's your, you know, third cousin who's doing it <laughs> or, or somebody else. <laughs> so you don't have to worry as much about surviving uh, just for yourself because your genes are going to get passed on anyway. Well, Something similar has transpired with termites just because those mounds that they're in, uh, even though the, the reproductive adults can fly, they don't fly super far. And so it leads also to not a lot of genetic diversity. What's really neat about Hymenoptera and the reason why they're the only animals on Earth with true eusocial structures is the weirdest adaptation that in my opinion, ever happened on earth. It's one of the strangest phenomena and it would be perfect for sci-fi. I'm shocked that it's not been replicated. I mean, maybe in the newer ones, cause I haven't seen any of the new ones, but uh, in like star Trek or something. Uh, hmm. And that is a phenomenon called haplodiploidy and haplodiploidy is a really weird thing. So here's, here's the deal with humans. Humans have 40, six chromosomes. It took me a sec. I was like, what's 23 times two? <laughs> we have, we have 46 chromosomes in our somatic cells. That is to say the cells that aren't eggs or sperm and gametes are eggs and sperm. And, uh, we get 23 from one parent and we get 23 from the other. And what happens is when a human being makes sperm or egg cells, those cells divide twice and they randomly shuffle into 23 chromosomes. And so then when one fertilizes the other, it adds up to a total of 46 and you have a new organism with, you know, half of one parent's DNA and half of the others. And that's why every other animal pretty much 
except for the ones that reproduce asexually or, or use like what some bacteria do where they just sort of trade. It's like a flipping swap meet with DNA. Hmm. With those exceptions, that's pretty much how that works. But something weird happened with Hymenoptera. At some point, and I have no idea how this occurred, it's a mind-boggling change. But what ended up happening was the females maintained that status quo of having, you know, somatic cells and then egg cells where they have half the DNA, but the males have half that DNA. So in other words, every single sperm cell that a male produces is a clone of their body. It's, it has the exact same amount of DNA as the rest of them. There is no half. There is no randomization. Their sperm cells and their somatic cells have the same amount of genetic code in them. And so what happens, the reason why this is such an odd thing to occur, it means that if a female lays an unfertilized egg, half of her DNA becomes a male. Hmm. And where this goes in the strange direction that it, that it headed in is that means, you know, as I was talking earlier, sort of about, you know, how each parent contributes 50%, that means that siblings have roughly 50% DNA and it just keeps going down. And that's why people uh, tend to care more for their children than say a stranger. And they care more for their children than their grandchildren and more for their grandchildren than their great grandchildren, because there's less genetic representation there. Well, Hmm. if you are haplodiploid, that means that your sister if you're a female, has 75 to almost to approaching 100% of your DNA because, again, you're, you have the same dad and he contributed 100% of his DNA. That also means that if you're a female and you have a brother, he has roughly 75% of your DNA and you have 100% of his DNA. <laughs> so, Golly. yeah, I mean, so like drone bees, they have no dads. And they only have one grandpa because of this weird haplodiploidy phenomenon. And where I'm going with this is that means that your mother has 50% of the same DNA with you if you're a female, let's say a worker bee, but your sisters all have 75 to 100%. So that means there's a huge incentive to ensure that your sisters, including a reproductive variant, a, a young queen from your mother, to protect that individual, and you're going to hedge your bets. You're going to you're going to pass your DNA along, even though you never have kids, because you know that sister, that reproductive sister, the the young queen, she's going to have a lot of kids. So it leads to this weird setup where it's in your best interest to not reproduce, which flies in the face of most adaptations <laughs> in nature. Okay. Wow. Instead, you end up with everybody specializing just to ensure that one of them reproduces a lot. And that's how you end up with this phenomenon of queen bees, queen wasps, queen ants, and why the workers are all female and yet sterile. And it's it's just a baffling thing. And one of the weirdest ways that bees have adapted to this, I mentioned that they're, they're kind of more democratic than, uh, than a monarchy. Um, the queen... If, if, say, she goes through basically bee menopause and now she's just laying unfertilized eggs, in other words, she's run out of sperm instead of eggs, like with mammals, um, she's just going to start laying drone eggs. Eventually, those worker bees will start noticing and they oh. will start planning and they will kill her. 
And uh, oh, yeah. really? And if there's no heir, if there's no young queen, something we still don't really know how they figure this one out. They decide that one of the workers, <laughs> usually it's a really young one because it's it's really tough to do. Apparently, uh, one of the workers is going to make a new queen. And like I said, they're sterile. So this should not really work out. Something real weird happens. This young worker eats a bunch of royal jelly, which is what how you, by feeding royal jelly to a, a larva female bee, you turn it into a queen. Well, what they do is they feed royal jelly to an adult, and she lays an egg, one egg, and that egg is a clone of her, and it becomes the new queen. And that's what? sort of their, like, fail-safe for if something happens to the queen or if they have to kill the queen because she's no longer useful. And, uh, and that happens pretty much every form of hymenoptera. There are plenty of instances where workers will kill the queen if they're not doing what's in the best interest of the colony. Because again, like us, the survival of the, the colony is like the survival of a superorganism. You know, our cells sacrifice themselves all the time for the survival of the body. It's not that different. That's amazing. Yeah. I didn't know that that's what happened. And that also explains some of the logic in the alien movies. Uh, <laughs> yeah, no, definitely. Oh, uh, man. And how like a queen comes about in those. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. So that I can see where the inspiration for that, some of that came from. Yeah. Um, very cool, James. Yeah, good deal. Wow. And Cece is singing to the baby. Uh, he is like, he's, he's been very gassy today. So he had to be escorted out of the room uh, immediately by security. <laughs> Um, so it's you and me. We're having to wrap up the uh, show, and I can't remember how CC wraps it uh, up. Alex, but who does anything our music? else, you guys? Oh wait, <laughs> here she is. Oh, here we go. Here she is. You must have gotten him asleep. He doesn't like his mood. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, perfect timing. So when CC edits this, she's going to get to listen to all this for the first time. She's be amazed. Uh, I was just thinking that. <laughs> you were just thinking that. Yeah, I was thinking what a what a treat this episode will be because I'm going to get to listen to it just like all of our. Wonderful listeners, our 13th Floriers. Anyways, um, James, great job. (laughs) Yeah, so uh, thank you all for tuning in to this episode. James's favorite, Bugs, his topic of choice. Um, Is there anything you guys want to add before we hit the road? Um, No, that's it. That's it. Now you know what the inspiration for some of the alien logic is yeah. with haplodiploidy bees and termites. Okay, well. You missed some good stuff. <laughs> All right, well, I'll get to listen to it. I'll get to listen to it. But Alex, who does our music? Our music is by Grant Cook. You can find his music on Spotify, Amazon Music, iTunes, anywhere you listen to music. So until next time, you guys, we hope that you can keep, keep it strange. strange.